Improvisation or improv is a form of live theater in which the plot, the characters, and the dialogue of a scene or story are made up as you go along. There are some general rules to follow, however, and one of the biggest rules is always say yes. If you are improving, say you're, you're gonna be in a lifeboat in the middle of the ocean and your scene partner asks, what are we going to do with the giant elephant in the back of our lifeboat? You don't question what an elephant might be doing in a lifeboat and you don't think about the practicalities of it. You just go along with it. You say yes by saying something like, maybe we can train it to put its trunk in the water and spin it and propel us forward. The one thing you don't say is no. If someone says, what are we going to do with the giant elephant in the back of our lifeboat? And you say, there is no elephant in the back of our lifeboat. How could there be one? And you try to control everything in the scene. It'll just come to a screeching halt. There's nothing on which to build. It can't go anywhere from there very easily anyway. Saying yes is a good practice to try with God also when he puts you in a situation. As when in improvisational theater, it seems he is asking you to do something, say yes, go with it. If you say no, any possible lesson that could come from it comes to an end. It's some of the best things in my life have come from, including the priesthood, saying yes when God asked. You know, when you're in the seminary, one of the things that you dream about is being at a big, beautiful church in which to say mass. You know, there, we've got some beautiful churches in our diocese, and it seems like it would be such a wonderful thing to be in those churches. Later on, you discover that having a good house in which to live, a good rectory, is far superior than having the most beautiful church in the world to, live, to say mass in. I thought I knew where my first assignment was going to be, and it was at a beautiful church. And uh, my, one of my classmates and I went to go look at it beforehand, and we went on a day when they weren't having mass, and we went in and looked around, and I was thinking, wow, what a beautiful church. I can't wait to say mass in here. And as it turned out, I was not assigned there. I was assigned someplace else, and it was not a beautiful church. And uh, I was kind of disappointed, and I went there, and it turned out to be a wonderful, wonderful assignment for seven years. The, the rectory life was wonderful. The people that, with whom I ministered were great. Now, had I had control and was able to make sure that I went to the other parish, I might have controlled myself right into a miserable life, or as it turned out, the people who were there the house life wasn't very good. There was a lot of angst and troubles and it was a difficult time. When things do not go your way, when you have a plan or a thought, but life takes you on its detour, you know, maybe it is an actual detour. Maybe it's a change of job. Maybe it's choosing the wrong line at the grocery store, at the toll booth or you got the wrong thing or accidentally ended up with the wrong people. You have two basic choices, basic. You can get angry or upset or sulk and then try to control the situation or 
You can assume that God put you in the situation for a reason and then say the prayer. Okay, God, why am I here? Show me why. Who am I supposed to meet? Or what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to see? What am I supposed to experience? What can I learn here? It may very well be that it was just a goofy thing that you ended up there, or it might be providence. You don't know. But you can choose to find the good in any situation, or you can sulk. It is for these reasons that my mom used to love detours. We would end up, she said, you know, that's fine, detour. We'll see things that we would have never seen otherwise. And once we were traveling up to the Finger Lakes, and for some reason the highway was closed, and we had to take these detours, which was very circuitous, uh, way to get back and around the, the uh, construction that was going on. And uh, even though it was going to play havoc with our schedule, we ended up passing this really cool shrine. And we decided to stop and get out and look at it. And it was kind of this, it was very flat land there, but there was this huge mound, I think it was uh, man-made. And it was kind of the stone walkway going up it with the stations of the cross. And we stopped there and prayed. And it was, it was really quite wonderful. And, and we would have never, ever experienced that unless we got put on this detour. And then we said, we're open to seeing what was there. And you know, we've never been able to find that shrine again. We have no idea where it was. And we still talk about it to this day, at least my sister and I about wasn't that a, a it was, we don't talk about anything else about that trip. We talk about finding that shrine. A lot of life is about being open to where God leads you. And more importantly, to be open to seeing what God wants you to see in the people, the places, and the situation in which he leads you. It might be the case that a person is led exactly to where God wants them, but if they're not open to it, it's just as though they were never there. Take, for instance, the feast day we celebrate today. Here's an example of those who were open and those who were not. We have the three magi, right, following the star. They have no idea where the star is going to lead them, but they're open to following. They know that they are called, and so they go. And when they finally reach their distant destination, God born on earth, the three kings pay homage to the newborn king, not in fear that they're going to lose their kingship, but working with God instead of imposing their own wills, open to the outcome, and the word made flesh is revealed to them. Then there's King Herod. He is in a wonderful position. The Messiah is finally coming, and he is in the best position to welcome him and protect him. He's in a position to receive much grace and gain a name to be revered in every generation. Could you imagine, had he been open to receiving the Messiah, perhaps he would re we would remember him even better than the three kings. He might have his own little statue in our nativity sets, and he might have his own feast day. King Herod recognizes the newborn king and welcomes him, right? And his own kingship would have been protected and strengthened for all generations. Instead, he is afraid. He zealously clings to his crown 
in trepidation of arrival, and he tries to control the situation and everyone in it. He is anxious, jealous, greedy, treacherous, and duplicitous. And he became the example of folly whenever the story is recalled. It is the oldest story in the universe. The angels were born or created to be before God in all his glory, and in turn, they shone with glory. But Lucifer, whose very name means bearer of light or morning star, did not want to be outshone or have anyone tell him what to do. He was jealous and vain and self-centered. Instead of, and, and instead of being held up as one of the most beautiful and prominent angels and the greatest cooperator with God, he is remembered in infamy. His very name is avoided and used as an example. And he lives among beings like himself, all of whom are vain and selfish, self-centered and jealous. And that's our definition of hell or a reality TV show. <laughs> you can see the tips of his wings up here in our window going down into the flames as St. Michael the Archangel sends him down into the flames of hell. You know, it can be very difficult to be open to God's will. People spend their whole lives trying to see it and find it. The problem is it's difficult to always be awake enough to choose the good. That's why it is good practice to always try to be open to his will, to practice it at all times. Not only might you be happier, you might stumble upon a manger, something really great to which God is leading you.